Hello, this is Adam S. Leslie, co-host of this very podcast. A quick plug before we start, my folk horror novel, Lost in the Garden, is now out and available in all good bookshops, including Blackwells and Waterstones. And now, back to your regularly scheduled Retrotube. Welcome to part two of our... You can tell we're slightly delirious because we've been doing this a long time. Welcome back to Star Trek. Welcome back to RetroTube Star Trek Series 1. Yeah. And we've just, in part one, we looked at an episode called Balance of Terror. That's when you look at your bank account and it's not good news. (laughs) (laughs) That is fact. And now we're going to be looking at this side of paradise, not the other side. Which is episode 24, series one, written by a lovely lady named Dorothy Fontana, who was the former secretary to Gene Roddenberry, until he realised that she knew how to write. And then he said to her, just call yourself DC rather than Dorothy, because if they know that you're a girl, they're not going to take you seriously. Because Gene Roddenberry... World's best feminist. ...was a really nice man. This, this is sarcasm, before, before anyone takes that the wrong way. Such a feminist. Feminist icon Gene Roddenberry. Can you please tell us about this episode, Miss Leslie? So this is about another outpost which has gone quiet. Same as last episode. This is a group of people who've gone to colonise a planet, but has since been discovered that it's been bombarded constantly by dangerous radiation, which means certain death for anyone who spends any length of time under this radiation which is constantly going onto this planet. Uh, They haven't heard Mm -hmm. from the colonists for a long long time three years i think so they've gone to yeah basically they're basically going there with a brush and dustpan but when they beam down to the planet they find that the colonists are not dead they're just smug they are smug they are thriving they're wearing dark green jumpsuits or overalls so they can't have it all this one's set in the waltons this is star trek meets the waltons and they find this self-sufficient community who are thriving on this planet that looks suspiciously like it's the hollywood hills and they are all perfectly fit and healthy and happy they're really happy they're really content they're having a lovely life on this planet so it sets up a really nice mystery mm. This idea that they should definitely be dead. You should be dead. Why are you so healthy? Why are you so smug? What's going on? But they're definitely alive. And it's one of them. I think it's maybe Sulu says, are they alive though? Are they definitely alive? Inferring that they might be animated corpses because they've seen some stuff. And Bones basically just rolls his eyes. (laughs) He doesn't say, no, you've, you shook his hand. It's warm. They're alive. And this one stars Frank Overton as Elias Sandoval, or Sandoval, I think it's Yes, pronounced. and Jill Island. The permanently out of focus Jill Island. Uh, the former Mrs McCallum. And I think future Mrs Charles Bronson. She's permanently out of focus. She's got big hair with golden light shining through it. Soft focus. She looks like she's in 1974. She does. Everybody else is in 1967. She's in 1974. I don't know what's going on. She's a futuristic lady. She is. This is not the first time that Spock has met up with Jill Island. No. It turns They've out. Got a bit of history. He's a man with a past. Yes, she recognises him and says, oh it's Mr Spock. Hi Mr Spock remember me? And he looks really embarrassed. He does. He's like, oh god. When I was at primary school, so we we were in uh, class one day and for some reason, this girl who lived near me, Zoe Smith there's some 
I think she said something about me. She, it wasn't an insult. She was saying something about my private life that she knew. Oh, right. And, and people, somebody said, like, how do you know that about him? And she said, I, I go over his house every few days. Yeah, we hang out all the time. And everyone laughed and I was so embarrassed. Oh. Like, I'd hang out with a girl. Oh, God, imagine you being friends with a girl. I know. Ugh. I was so embarrassed that a, that a girl would come around my house and we'd play together. Anyway, that's the exact expression that Mr Spock is wearing in this. Very, very much he so. He doesn't say anything. He's just staring straight ahead, blushing under his yellow <laughs> makeup. Mortified. <laughs> <laughs> and then later on, this made me laugh because... It's <laughs> because it's potentially the most relatable moment for me personally. <laughs> and you will know exactly who I'm talking about when I, when I read the, uh, <clears throat> the dialogue. Did you love him? If I did, it was important only to myself. Mr Spock's feelings were never expressed to me. It is said he has none to give. Oh, I've known men exactly the same as that. He's <laughs> way more have. human than he pretends. <laughs> <laughs> yep. You certainly have. That is very much a mood. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> He's just a nerd. He is just a nerd. He is. Good old Spock. Good old Spock. A note here I've always liked Bones McCoy's eyeshadow. Yeah. It's a very pretty shade of purple. And his pointy sideburns. He looks like he's from 1999. They are so pointy. He also, he kind of has triangular eyebrows. He does. They're quite similar looking in a way, aren't they? The the two, him and uh, Spot. Yeah. I mean, obviously, Bones' eyes are just so blue. They're so so very blue. So this is a very intriguing episode. It's quite like the Twilight Zone. It has this central mystery of, of why are these people who should definitely be dead, why are they still alive? Then not only are they still alive, they're perfectly healthy. And even people who have previously had operations and scarring on their lungs, it's all cleared up. So are they the same person? Have they been replaced? They've got new appendixes and everything. Yeah, got their appendices have grown back. All sorts of stuff. So it's sort of a combination of... It's mostly reminiscent, actually, of um, a novel by Frank Herbert called The Santa Rosa Barrier, which is about this small town in America who have this food called Jaspers that they eat, and it makes them very happy and content and somewhat smug. It makes them totally disinterested in the outside world, so they become very self-contained. Weren't Jaspers a kind of biscuit a few years ago? Oh, maybe. And that's a contemporary story. Uh, that's from 1967 as well. So I wonder if... Because often a lot of the, the fiction in the 60s was inspired by the philosophical and sociological teachings. There was lots of interest came through in the music and the uh, writing that, uh, about philosophy and sociology and these characters who sprung up, like the Timothy Learys and the less, less well-known ones. There's this sudden interest in psychology and sociology and philosophy and a lot of that stuff. So I wonder if this was inspired by the same thing as the Santa Rosa Barrier was. And Frank Herbert said that he wanted to create this society where half of the people reading the book would think it was a utopia and half of the people reading it would think it was a dystopia. Which I think they've kind of done here as well. I think it's the same sort of thing. Yeah. And we've also got elements of Day of the Triffids. Um, So this all derives from these plants that are actively hostile towards people. Potentially hostile. They spit these spores in people's faces which change their personality and their outlook. They lurk. The right lurkers. The right lurkers. Uh, and also, appropriately, Invasion of the Body Snatchers is an element in this. And and who 
appeared in the 1978 remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers? I actually don't. You actually don't know? I don't know. I've not seen any version of that. It's a certain actor named Mr. Leonard Nimoy. No! Who plays one of these aforementioned academic... I, I haven't seen it for a few few years, so I can't remember exactly who he is, but he's a writer and he writes books about sociology and psychology and he's quite a, an unpleasantly smug character. All right, let's back up and go through it once more. Step by step. You all thought you saw a body at the baths. You thought it was dead. You didn't know what it was. You touched it. All of you touched it. Nancy, you saw it open its eyes. It looked right at me. And Belichick, you saw its eyes open. No, I saw its nose bleed. Well, if you saw its nose bleed and Nancy saw its eyes open, he must have been alive. Not David, what you're doing, well, you're looking at it as if it was human. It was not human. Matthew, what else would it be? It's a fascinating story. I don't know how successful it is, but I think that's possibly more to do with the production, which is less subtle than the first episode we watched. Mm. It's a lot more melodramatic. There's a lot more melodrama. The music is emphatic, to say the least. So whereas Balance of Terror left a lot of room for things to happen and there actually was weren't that many music cues this is slightly swamped by music and it's yeah it's music that i think could possibly have done with being a bit more experimental or a bit more not even avant-garde but maybe just contrasting with the emotions rather than really throwing syrup over all the emotions so when yeah the love music in star trek has always been the same it's all the flutes they could find every flute in hollywood has turned up for this love music (laughs) and and even and even some got imported from other cities I think they could have done with someone like John Williams, who is known now for quite lush music, but in the 60s, because he did the music for Lost in Space, which is a lot more clangy, clattery, strange and experimental, and he did the music for Robert Altman's early film, Images. His earlier stuff is a lot less lush than the orchestral big budget stuff he's known for now. So I think it could have done with that kind of thing rather than the really... It feels very old Hollywood. It feels almost 1940s. So with the really overboard use of soft focus and this early Hollywood music and some of the scene choices, it lacks subtlety. But I think the actual central themes of it are really interesting because it's essentially about this society who is perfectly happy and healthy but they are artificially so because of the spores from this this plant 
and the, the, the spores absorb the deadly radiation, which is why they have managed to survive this long. So they are the same people. So unlike Invasion of the Body Snatchers, where they have actually been replaced, Invasion of the Body Snatchers and the Stepford Wives, that's about people being actually replaced. So that's mu- a much more cut-and-dried moral non-dilemma. But this is a moral dilemma. I don't know if it's presented as a moral dilemma as such or whether it's just left for the audience to think about afterwards. Yeah, I think I think kind of it's presented more as a sort of a, wait a minute, why are you all leaving the Enterprise? What's wrong with you? <laughs> <laughs> but I have to say, if there was a weird, creepy plant that kind of... I think I can only speak as, as a disabled person mm. who has whose disabilities run to excruciating pain and limited ability to walk. If I was if I was suddenly hit by plant spores, that made me completely better. And really happy and content. And really I would I would I would be delighted. I would be thrilled. I'd don't even care about the moral implications. I just want to stop being in pain all the time. That would be great. So yeah, I I, I don't see I don't see any downsides to be honest of, of of perfect health and living in a really nice countryside kind of place. I mean, you know, the, the clothes could be nicer, but you know that's not. <laughs> but they're too happy to even care about the clothes. Yeah. Yeah. So this is the central conflict. It's complete health and happiness versus being in the military and taking orders in which the former is presented as the bad one that they have to be rescued from. So all the crew start mutinying uh, and today they're mutinying because they're all stoned out of their boxes. Yes, they must have accidentally eaten particular brownies. They've eaten all of Bones as brownies. They're all listening to uh, Grateful Dead and watching Cheech and Chong in their cabins. Yes, all the all of the crew except for Kirk get turned into stoners. No, they're just very, very happy. They are very happy. And it, it does raise the question, even if health and happiness is artificially administered, is it such a bad thing? Why should they go back to being in the military and being bossed around by a Canadian? <laughs> that is a very good question. Because they're happy now. They are happy now. We see Kirk in context of the rest of his crew and the Enterprise as being this dynamic, charismatic leader. But once all that's stripped away from him, it's just him. He is so full of self-doubt. And military bluster. He doesn't really know what to do with himself. He doesn't. And that's when he seems the most like the, the brigadier. Yeah, he, he seems so lost. He says, I don't know what I can offer against paradise. That is like the, the the least Jim Kirk thing for him to say because even if he's not being outwardly, you know, hey, it's me, guys, he has this sort of inner confidence of, of what he can do and what he's achieved. And now that everybody's left him, even Spock, who is the person he's closest to, and Bones. Bones has a, now has a really strong Georgia accent.
The polyamorous relationship is very real and both of his husbands have left him. <laughs> he's quite broken by it. Mm. And he's really, not physically weak, but he's just, potentially he doesn't even know who he is without his crew. Yes, I think so. That's part of his identity. Because he's so used to being, yeah, he's so used to being the captain and, and, and whatever he says and whatever he wants, he just says to, he just says, do this, do that and... It's not because he's like a harsh taskmaster. It's just because that's who he is. He's the guy in charge. So yeah, for all his kind of blonde surfer good looks, he's a military guy, and he he's lost without that. And it's interesting earlier on as well, before all his crew start to go a bit funny and mutiny, he does also come across as a bit of a fascist. So there's the bit where he has his orders that they have to evacuate the planet because it's dangerous, and they say, "Look, we're having." having a great life we're happy we're healthy it's not it's clearly not dangerous we've been living here for, for for three years we're thriving he's like no you must evacuate and we'll get in reinforcements and we'll force you to evacuate and i'm like oh this is uh we're getting into police state territory here but how's he going to go back to starfleet and say yeah well i'm sorry i'm sorry guys but they don't want to yeah he's only following orders he's only following orders they don't want to. They don't want to leave the planet. I don't no. know what to do, so I just left them there. He's not going to say that. He's, you know, he's had his orders. He's got to. Yeah, he's he's got to follow them. them. He kind of has. But he makes unilateral decisions in other episodes. I know. I know. The prime directive is just more of a suggestion to him. <laughs> but he, he's a bit of a bully. It's in like this. keep it in mind. Mm. <laughs> I don't think he. I think he would have been if anybody had listened to him. <laughs> But he's very ineffectual for the majority of this episode. Everybody's just too busy being happy and healthy and getting the tonsils returned and whatnot (laughs) and drinking mint juleps. I could could do with a mint julep. I don't even know what one is, but I could do with one. They sound nice. I know. It sounds well tasty. I'm going to, just while we are, while while we're having a little chat, and you can do editing things, I am going to Google what's in a mint julep. The ingredients are uh, sugar, bourbon, water, and mint leaves. That does sound good. That sounds amazing. I would drink the hell out of that. (laughs) I'd be there sitting under the tree with bones. We'd both be be on the old mint juleps. Sounds very refreshing in in a heat wave. Nice mint juleps. Delicious. Oh yeah. I mean, I've got got some bourbon in. I might. uh, I might. I've just got my cardamom vodka. Oh, (laughs) you're so middle class. (laughs) I made it myself. Oh, I didn't buy it from Waitrose. <laughs> I know. You're the only person on earth I've ever known who drinks cardamom vodka. My cardamom vodka. Uh, yes, so Bones is getting drunk at the bottom of the garden. <laughs> <laughs> Jill Island's personality is love interest. Yes, it is. It very much is. We know exactly what her role is. It's to simper about it, Spock. It's to smooch Spock. And um, honestly, if you turned up to work one day and they said to you, I mean, not you specifically, but if they said to me, hey, nice to have you here. Today, we, all we want you to do is smooch Leonard Nimoy. <laughs> I'd say, thank you very much. Thanks. Do I need to do any overtime? Because, you know, I, 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 can, I can arrange that. This is the equivalent of... Um... A monkey's episode in which it's in which it's Mike who has the love interest rather than Davy. 
yeah, that doesn't really happen. And it didn't happen because, he, because obviously, Mike was married with child. But he's also an actor. There was a bit of a thing, like at Mike's particular request, there was... Oh, he's a bit of a Patrick <coughs> Patrick McGowan. Sorry, I got a uh, dry throat suddenly while saying the name of the guy from Prisoner. <laughs> yeah, so he's a bit of a Patrick McGowan. I did see this episode when I was little because I vividly remember and remember being freaked out by the scene in which they come across Spock hanging from a tree branch and giggling. Not hanging by his <laughs> neck. He's hanging by his limbs. Like, he's he's got his limbs. It's sloth fashion. He's hanging yes, in a playful yes. way by his limbs. Nobody was more freaked out by that than, than Jim, to yes. be honest. <laughs> what the hell are you doing? But I remember finding that quite an eerie moment when I was little. Despite the comedy music, and yeah. one of my notes I wrote was, I wish, really wish the music would stop. When Jim calls Spock once he's been, you know, turned, he's literally 13. Yes, what do you want? <laughs> he says, I wrote it down. I think by this stage I was thinking the same thing. He says, yes, Jim, what is it now? <laughs> you were told to report to me at once. I didn't want to, Jim. And Jim doesn't think, well, there's something clearly wrong here. He gets all blustery. I, I, I say, that man... <laughs> Yeah, my my best bit is, you were told to report to me at once. I didn't want to, yeah. Jim. Yes, I can see that. <laughs> <laughs> and then Bones was also, like, very much WTAF. And Jim said, but you said you'd like him if you mellowed a bit. <laughs> and Bones went, didn't, I did not. say that. <laughs> Uh, but you see, Bones is the only one who's like, yeah, but he might be in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> He's not just being randomly disobedient. No. Spock, can't take him anywhere. Only twice. Second time to apologise. <laughs> Poor old Spock. Poor old Spock. The one time he lets it, his hair down. He gets a jolly good smack bottom. Just a side note, I like the satin walls of the teleport bay. It's sort of white satin, isn't it? It's lovely. It is lovely. Very swish. So Kirk finally gets turned and he becomes very happy and he decides to go and join them on the planet. But something in the back of his mind, he's so distraught about the possib possibility of leaving his beloved ship forever that that's... He has a moment. He has a bit of a breakdown and he... That snaps him out of it, and he realises that it's it's anger and negative, violent emotions that will snap you out of this this blissful state that you are in. So he calls Spock up, 
And then he's all racist at him. He's all racist. But before this happens, mm. I want to introduce you to a game that is uh, that was invented potentially on Tumblr. It happens a lot on Tumblr. It's one of one of the Star Trek fandom favorite games. Um, Star Trek or porno? <laughs> okay. The line: Mister Spock is much stronger than the ordinary human being. Aroused his great physical strength <laughs> could kill, but it's a risk I'll have to take. Oh dear. Wow, Jim. Just concentrate, fella. <laughs> when Spock comes back up onto the ship and Jim starts being a bit weird and racist, he adds in quite a bit of trash talk that is extremely ineffectual. He says, You're an overgrown jackrabbit, an elf. With an overactive thyroid. Should be sitting on a mushroom. I mean love. Honey. Petal. However, you say that, the last straw is when he says you should be in a freak show next to the dog-faced boy. Yes. That's when Spock flips his lid. How dare you? The dog-faced boy. How dare you compare me to a dog-faced boy? The dog-faced boy. He goes bananas. Jim's trash talk is not just terrible in this episode, I would like to say. There's an episode later on in series one called Errand of Mercy, and this is the first time that we meet the Klingons. And the King, the Klingon leader is interrogating Jim, and Jim gives him the Kirk smirk. <laughs> you know the one. I do. And he says, with his entire chest, go climb a tree. Wow. I know. How, how did he recover from an insult like that? 
the zingers never start. <laughs> Honest to God. This is, does end up with a, a big, big, big fight between the stunt doubles. <laughs> It does. I noticed. Uh, I noticed a man in a blonde wig being flung across the uh, teleport room at one point. Yes, by by a, a man in yellow face paint, and the person doing the flinging was very much not an anemone. This is the downside of a high def restoration. I could even see the join in Mister Spock's ears. Wow. I know. But it does look gorgeous. It does look gorgeous. You know, swings and roundabouts in it, really. They transmit some kind of signal to the surface of the planet, which makes everyone become aggressive, and they start brawling. It just ends in a big brawl, and I wrote down, they've become proper Americans again. Yes, thank God. Because they're all punching each other. (laughs) Finally. It's just time. My favourite turn to aggression was definitely Bones. Because it was just the most, it was one of the most amazing moments. Oh, yes, he bits Elias Sandoval, doesn't he? He does. And not because, like, he's being insulted, but he's being told that he can't be a doctor anymore. Oh, don't you tell Dr. Leonard Horatio McCoy that he cannot be a doctor. Because if there's one thing we know about Dr. McCoy is that he isn't lots of other things. There are lots of things that he's not, but he most certainly is. A doctor. And when Elias says to him, we don't need you anymore, not as a doctor, Bone says, again, with his entire chest, would you like to see just how fast I can put you in a hospital? (laughs) Hey, whoa, hang on a minute. (laughs) And then he follows it up with, you better make me a mechanic and then I can treat little tin gods like you. Oh! Yes. Now you see, Jim Lovey, this is how you do trash talk. This, <laughs> this, is, this is it. Oh, he's such a bitch. I love it. <laughs> and then when um, Sandoval comes round and is, is normal again, he's suddenly hit by remorse. Like, it's been three years and I haven't done anything. We were supposed to turn this planet into a garden I mean, it looks nice anyway. I don't really know what the problem is. Well, they've turned it into a nice farm in three years. I mean, you know, what were they expecting? But I'm thinking, yes, but you were happy. They never really explore it. And possibly they didn't intend to. And it is just, again, left in the air for the audience to think about afterwards. And I think we'll we'll get to the very last line in the, the show in a bit. Are they better off now that they're free and unhappy? And conflicted. Or were they free before? Yes, were they free before? Because they seemed like they were having a lovely time. I mean, they were smug, but wouldn't you be? If you're not achieving anything, that doesn't matter if you're blissfully happy. And why are you doing anything? Why Why are people doing anything if not in pursuit of some kind of happiness or improvement or, you know, Im- improving your lot in life? So if you've reached that point where actually you don't feel that you can improve because you're perfectly happy and you're perfectly healthy, then... It doesn't matter, and why should we feel like we live in this, I would say, capitalist society, but also I think Soviet communism is very very hung up on a a certain work ethic as well, so I think they would be a bit down on this as well. So I don't think it's even necessarily a capitalism thing, but just this idea that our worth is in working and not in simply being happy and enjoying life, which they were. So it's a, a conflicting idea that actually, have they saved the day?
Certainly the person I think who is affected most by this removal of emotion or removal of happiness is definitely Spock. I mean, when he has to break up with Layla, when she comes up to the transporter room, he really doesn't want to have the conversation. And, and she she is a little bit on the melodramatic side. And she does a lot of like head throwing back and flinging herself, which is a little bit off-putting. And and in fact, I did I did write in my notes I could feel Spock's heartbreak more than hers because hers seemed to be a bit more. This is how I should behave. Yes, it's nineteen forties Hollywood emotion acting. Yeah, I mean obviously there are nineteen forties films that do these things brilliantly and subtly, but it's generally that sort of pot boiler kind of thing. But Spock's line. I have a responsibility to this ship, to that man on the bridge. I am what I am, Layla. If there are self-made purgatories, then we all have to live in them. Mine can be no worse than anyone else's. So he knows that he he's not going to be as happy in his new old state as he was when he'd genuinely experienced happiness and love and all of that kind of thing. But it was replaced by his responsibility. He hints that he loves Jim as well. That is a genuine feeling that he has in whatever context you want to interpret that love. But that deep inside, Spock really does want more. He shows so much in the way that like, he wipes a tear away and smiles. And it's like he is seriously the most human and the most demonstrative, but people don't, don't seem to look for it enough. I feel. Yes, I think it's a shame that that scene is so mannered because it could have been brilliant, but it's got the music and it's got the full melodramatic icing on the cake. There's a lot of icing on this cake when we could have just had the cake. So you didn't really feel her heartbreak because it was so standard melodrama.
And I think the bit that worked better, and if they'd used that as the scene instead, there's the bit where she's first talking to him after he's returned to his normal self. She's first talking to him over the intercom. He's on the spaceship, she's on the planet. Mm. And she's sensing that he doesn't sound right. He, he's being a bit off with her and being a bit... A bit spockish. He's being a bit spockish and she's sensing. And that's the point at which you should really see her heart breaking because I think this is affecting her even more because obviously she's she's been in love with him all this time and she's got him back and she's got him being demonstrative and laughing and giggling and tickling her under the arms and all sorts of things and going, wee! Uh, <laughs> he wasn't really doing that, but that's what I kind of imagine Spock doing. What was I saying? Yes, uh, so I think that could have been a really... If, if that had been the scene instead when she could have just walked quietly away and just hung up the receiver on yeah, the phone. I agree, I agree. And especially because, like, Bones was being so cheerful. Mm. Like, stood next to her with, like, a big grin on his face and he probably would have been oblivious to her feelings and that would have been a really nice contrast. I don't think there was a need to do both scenes. But you've got to pad it out to 50 minutes somehow. But I think the final line, the final line in the show is that, because I kind of thought, oh, this show doesn't know how to do emotion properly. What are they playing at? But then it gets to the final line. Yes. Of the very end of the show, which no one reacts, like you, you see Spock delivering the final line, then it's the end. So you don't see how anyone else reacts to it. Heartbreaking. It really was heartbreaking, especially because Kirk had just been 
doing a bit of a pontificate about how maybe we weren't meant for paradise. We walked out. We walked out of Eden on our own. We weren't meant. For par- we were meant to like fight and claw and struggle and march the beat of a. And I'm like, no, we weren't, Jim. You just didn't want to leave your fucking shit. Yeah, you're just in the military. Shut up. We don't all want to fight. Sometimes we just want to hang upside down from a tree. And go, wee, 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 wee. And smooch our girlfriends. Mm-hmm. That's like literally all we're after. Some of us just want to sit under a tree and drink a mint julep and be left alone. Chomp on a long strand of grass. It's all right for him giving the orders. I know. We weren't meant for paradise. Yes, we were. You just don't want it. So I like how that final line undercuts all that and it undercuts this assumption that we've had all... Because we've sort of had this assumption all the way through that Kirk is right and we have to snap these people out of this. We have to achieve things. We're people, we have to achieve things. We can't just be happy. Uh, But I think that does undercut it and you're left thinking, oh, maybe the show isn't necessarily taking that stance. So that was interesting. I think the real happy ending, though, was the fact that Bones got to keep his tonsils. <laughs> he gets his tonsils back! He gets his tonsils back and he gets to keep them. <laughs> he's, he's quite chuffed, isn't he? He has a little oh, smile. Oh, delighted. Mm-hmm. He's looking God pleased as punch. He could not be happier. <laughs> no idea what the, what the function of the tonsils are, no. but they can do that to the heart's content mm-hmm. now. Spock may have lost a girlfriend, but Bones has gained some tonsils, so it's... What you lose <laughs> what you lose in the girlfriends, you gain on the tonsils. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Who needs love when you can have tonsils? <laughs> Which was your favourite of the two episodes? I think the first one. So I think the second one was actually the more interesting. Mm. It's the more thought-provoking, but I think it had too much affectation in the filming styles so the music and the the soft focus and everything so actually as television i think the the balance of power balance of terror worked much better as a piece of television i agree and i loved the camp romulans as well oh the camp Mm -hmm. you can't go wrong with a camp romulan yeah the, the the most camp sci-fi villain until Camp Freddy from The Italian Job turns up in Doctor Who as a demented horticulturalist, with Boise as his henchman. Wow, what what an image. I know. (laughs) It's quite the thing. So, who was your favourite and least favourite character? I've probably already been there. I think my favourite character is Romulan Captain, and... I think my least favourite character is poor Jill Island having to do love interest. Do you have a favourite, least favourite character of the main main set mm. of folks? That's a tricky one because they do all work well together. I would have said Kirk, but you've maybe talked me around. You might have talked me talked me around to the benefits of a of a good Kirk. Do you know, I feel like I've really accomplished something in my life now. <laughs> and you you did you did have a bit of a chat and a fanboy session during that man from Uncle. I did. Episode. This is true. I'll tell you who my least favourite character is. Chekhov, because he's not in it. He was always my second favourite when I was little watching it. So I was always really disappointed in the episodes that Chekhov wasn't in. Yeah, he's not in series one at all. He's he's my least favourite merely for the fact that he's not in it. Yeah, no, I get that. My favourite was Scotty just because he was Scottish. That he's not really he does actually quite a bad impression of being Scottish, but he was he was the Scottish one, so he was my favourite. 
but I always looked forward to the ones that Chekhov was in as well. Yeah, Chekhov was great. And my favourite, I think, I actually think Spock. Yeah. It's definitely a toss-up between him and Bones. They are the two best. Spock, you just want to give him a cuddle. You really do. He he needs a cuddle. I think Bones would like would, would be well happy for a cuddle. <laughs> Bones would love a cuddle and a, and a drink. Spock would hate a cuddle but secretly love a cuddle. But definitely, definitely need one. <laughs> Yeah, I think so. After all the trouble Jim puts him through every week. <laughs> My favourite character certainly from series one. I'm just still really bitter that she was only in like eight episodes. Janice Rand. She's my best. She's just my best. I just love her. You didn't get to see her do enough in the episode that she was in. And I think my I think my worst of the re- I feel like I might be alienating an awful lot of people here, but my my least favourite of the regular characters has always been Sulu. And I'm really sorry. No. Because I, I love George Takei, but I just... I don't think they ever really decided what they were doing with Sulu. Yeah, he doesn't actually have much of a personality, does he? He's No, he's just kind of... And, like, it started off... Like, the very early episodes of Star Trek, He was he was very much into, you know being sort of like a swashbuckling hero. Mm. Um, he, um, Shatner says no. You know, he, act, and he, he acted out quite a bit there. And he had more of a charming and sarcastic, cheeky kind of sense of humour. But they kind of, they dampened him down a lot. And they didn't use him enough. So it's not, it's not anything to do with George Takei himself. It's not to do with Sulu, the character. I think it's just that he was... He just wasn't used enough, so I've always found it really difficult to connect to him, is what I'm saying. I think with any of these shows with a a large regular crew, and it's the same with Blake Seven, there'll always be ones, there'll always be characters that the writers naturally like writing for more, so there'll be the ones that get marginalised because everyone likes writing for Spock, Bones and Kirk and Uhura, so Scotty and uh, Sulu kind of get pushed a bit more into the margins. How about the two episodes we watched? Who were your favourite and least favourite? Well, Jill Island was my least favourite, but I, I I, never know with when, when I see Jill Island and things, I never know if I dislike her because I dislike the characters that she plays or because she cheated on Davy McAllen. Oh. I think any time that you have Mark Leonard as a guest actor, it's got to be up there with your best characters. It always brings something really nice to the to the screen. Do you have a best worst sort of scene moment thing element whatnot? Worst definitely the the use of music, not the theme music, but just the overly emphatic oh, yeah. use of music. I, I could do with some lovely phasey synthesizers or something, something a bit more spacey. I mean, it was nineteen sixty seven. They, they had to work with what the romantic music mm. is just, and the comedy music, and just it's... nothing dampens any moods more than the bad music. <laughs> no. I think fa- favourite element, the iconic characters. And the colours. It's And the colours, yeah. I think it's the show, possibly, out of all TV shows, maybe alongside Friends, that has the most iconic ensemble of characters. I think this and Friends. Yeah. Like you said at the beginning, 13 years ago when we started recording, <laughs> you know, even if, you've, even if you've never seen an episode in your life or even like a clip, you still know who Mr Spock is. I think you probably know who Spock was before you'd know who Jim was. Speaking of the music, my, my favourite thing about the music, and, and this is the theme tune, not in the first series. I don't know why. I don't know why the first series theme tune didn't have the the lady doing the ah thing. I guess they um, hadn't done it yet. I, 
I could have I could have one hundred percent done without her at all. But my favorite thing about that is that in the first series, the main credits say starring William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy. In the second and third series, it's starring William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy and DeForest Kelly. Um, she goes up an octave when DeForest Kelly's name <laughs> appears on screen. And that, to me, is the biggest mood. <laughs> and that's the only deforestation we actually like. Thank you so much thank for you watching star trek yeah i'm quite worn just, out now just in general yeah i'm absolutely wrecked um <laughs> and for talking to me for like six and a half decades it's been great to spend some time with you again Yay. it's been a while and it's been nice to talk about old telly and thank you to you for listening in I know it's been a while and hopefully it won't be quite so long next time. Next time, thank God I don't need to make any decisions about anything because Adam once more is in charge so I feel better. Can you give us a clue as to what we're going to be looking forward to next time, Adam? Uh, no. <laughs> I, hadn't, I hadn't thought about it. <laughs> I, I always Fine. don't think about the ending until it arrives and I was like, oh, I haven't prepared anything. Let's just say it's probably about the furthest you can possibly get from the last three. From Heather's last three choices, I'm taking us somewhere that's possibly on the far corner away from He's those choices. It's almost uncharted territory. It pretty much is, yeah. It, it's a genre we haven't touched yet. It's a whole brand new thing for RetroTube. Uh, if you would like to get in touch at any point, you are more than welcome to. We are on Twitter. Our, uh, our account is at retro underscore tube. Uh, or if you don't particularly like Twitter, and I understand that, because neither do I, uh, you can always email us. Our email address is retrotubepodcast at gmail.com, and we are dead good at getting back to you, because we have nothing better to do in our lives. Well, I certainly don't, and I'm in charge of the email account. Um, so, yes, that's all from me. I am completely devoid of words now. Adam, do you have the last word? Yes, Jim, what is it now? <laughs> This is Adam S. Leslie, co-host of this very podcast. My folk horror novel, Lost in the Garden, is now out and available in all good bookshops, including Blackwells and Waterstones. Don't talk to strangers, don't play on the farm, and don't go to Almondby. Heather's on-off boyfriend Stephen has gone to the mysterious village of Almondby. He went for two weeks, and no one has seen him in six months. The only trace of him which remains is his voice, distantly calling for help, drifting across the fizz of shortwave radio. With a couple of friends in tow, Heather sets off through a warped, distended version of the English countryside, baking in perpetual summer, to track Stephen down, and to find out for herself why everyone says, don't go to Almondby. Author Eric LaRocca called Lost in the Garden eerily enchanting and profoundly inventive, a dreamy and unsettling masterwork. This is one of the freshest and most spiritually rewarding novels I've read in quite some time. 
and author Matt Wazolowski described it as like trying to recall a troubling and beautiful dream. It's like peering through a wound in the world, sorrowful and uncanny and utterly stunning. This book is magnificent, like nothing I've ever read before. Thank you, Matt and Eric. Lost in the Garden by Adam S. Leslie, published by Denink Books, priced at ten ninety nine. Look for the pink and white cover.